0: Lord Jesus, we thank You that love is seen in You. We know that You are love, God, because You sent Your Son and Christ. You have secured it for us on the cross. And Thank You, God, for defining love so clearly. God, teach us to be those that sacrificially pursue the good of others in the same kind of love that brought peace to us in Christ. In whose name we pray. Please be seated. Children, you're dismissed. And, uh, <laughs> yeah, so uh, there's, a, uh, there's a couple that uh, I recently heard about, a couple, married couple, that got in an argument. And um, they got in an argument with one of each other, and they resorted in the midst of that argument to that oh-so-mature way of handling the, co- the conflict. By the way, I don't know what's going on right here, but there is no- nobody sitting here, so I'm going to preach right here. Thank you, Berkeley. Thank you, Berkeley. My goodness. There's some sort of disease apparently happening right in the middle here. Thank you. It makes me feel a little better. It feel a little awkward to see this giant hole. Thank you, David, Hannah. Yeah, I don't know what's going on over there, but thank you. Thank you. Thank you. That makes me feel that you served me this morning. But yeah, this couple, they got in an argument, and in the midst of their argument, or actually after their argument, they resorted to that oh-so-mature way of handling the argument by resorting to giving each other the silent treatment. And so they had this silent treatment, and this silent treatment went on for quite some time, maybe almost up to a week, when the husband realized that he needed to speak to the wife in order, she, he needed her to do something. And so uh, what he decided to do so as to not break the silent treatment again, an oh-so-mature tr- way to approach it, he needed her to wake him up in the morning to catch a flight in the morning. And so instead of breaking the silent treatment that he had with her, he decides to write a note to her. And, uh, and he tells her that he wants her to wake him up at 5 a.m. to catch his flight. So he goes to sleep, puts a little note next to the bed. He goes to sleep and he wakes up the next morning. He rolls over and his wife is not there. And he notices, he then looks at the clock and he sees at the clock that it says 9 a.m. His flight is long gone. And he stands up in disgust to his wife and he's ready to give her a piece of his mind when he notices right next to his own bedside that there's another note. And that note read, it's 5 a.m., wake up. (laughs) So we're talking about settling disputes this morning, settling arguments. That's probably not a good example of how to go about doing that. Uh, and if you're wondering, if you're a visitor here, welcome. We're not talking about settling arguments because we're having a great one as the life of our church. This is the beauty of walking through books of the Bible, where we learn about an argument that was being had inside the church some 2,000 years ago. And so we're talking about settling disputes this morning. Settling disputes or disagreements is something all of us are familiar with, with one in one way, shape, or form. It's possible that somebody, some of you had disputes or a disagreement with the person you're sitting next to right now, this morning. And so these are difficult things. Some of you have had disagreements or disputes in ways uh, that are not light and momentary. Uh, Some of you have had disagreements and disputes with one another or other family members or things of the like that are so deep that bitterness has begun to kind of rest in your soul. Hurt is there. Fear is there. Anger is there. And so in a world of brokenness, we're all familiar with disagreements and the hurt that comes from them. And we would hope that disagreements wouldn't happen in the life of a church and a gospel-believing church. We would hope that that would be the case, but uh, in reality, as long as there are sinners saved by grace, if they're the ones that make up the church, we should expect that there's always going to be the possibility for disagreement. And so it's no surprise to us that we learn even in a good church, in a healthy church, at Grace Church Philippi, as we're calling it, in the book of Philippians, they had a dispute that needed to be worked out. Some of you even have experienced... Uh, fighting and disagreements inside the life of the church firsthand. Some of you are familiar with uh, how one family fought against another family in the life of a church. Some of you are familiar with how uh, there was disputes amongst uh, married couples uh, inside the life of the church. Others of you are familiar with how pastors handled themselves poorly in the life of a church. And so there was a disagreement there. And so disagreements inside the life of the church, for some of you, is not just an idea in the Bible. It's real for you disagreements have shaped some of you so foundationally that you have trouble getting on in the life of the church. So what do we do as Christians? What do we do when there's disagreement? How is it we get to a place where we can live inside the unity that we have in Christ as Christ's church? Well, that's what God's going to help us think about this morning in Philippians chapter four, verses two to three. You can go ahead and turn there. That's where we find ourselves uh, this morning, continuing on as we have been walking through it. Now, the situation that I'll read here in just a moment, this disagreement that's happening, it's possible that this is the occasion for why Paul writes this letter as a whole, this disagreement. It's possible. Uh, so for Paul to single out Euodia and Syntyche, as we'll read about in just a moment, for, them to, for him to pull out that disagreement and plead with each of them to agree, it tells us that this disagreement must have been no small matter. No small matter. So why else would have Epaphroditus, who was the guy that delivered the news of Philippi, why else would have Epaphroditus brought it up to Paul in order for it to be addressed after traveling that road from Philippi all the way to Rome? If it was a small, small or minor thing, I'm sure Epaphroditus would have forgotten about it, especially since he got so sick and almost died on the way to see Paul. Paul. So there was something about the importance of that disagreement that Epaphroditus brings up to Paul. So we can imagine Epaphroditus, he comes from Grace Church Philippi, he travels to the city of Rome where Paul is in prison to greet him and tell him about the news, bring him some resources. We can imagine the two of them getting together, they hug each other, so good to see you, oh good, they sit down. Paul says to Epaphroditus, how's Grace Church Philippi doing? And Epaphroditus says, oh they're doing great, they love Jesus, they're you know, standing for the gospel, they're spreading the gospel. I can imagine maybe Paul even says, how's Lydia doing? You know, Lydia's doing great. You know, the church is growing in her house, like they starting to, like there's no room anymore in her house, We're kind of things are going well there. But then Paul notices on Epaphroditus' face, something's off. And he says to him, well, what is it, Epaphroditus? And Epaphroditus says, well, the church is doing well, Paul, but listen, there's a little bit of grumbling and complaining starting to kind of seep up some false teaching that's been kind of going around a little bit. And I hate to say this to you, Paul, but you and Tyke, you know them. They, you've walked with them, shared the gospel with them. They've been in each other's throats for a while. And the second Paul hears this, he knows, I've got to write a letter. I've got to address this. That's, I think, one of at least the occasions of why he's writing this letter. Paul knows, Paul knows that division inside the life of a church Lies about the unity that we have in the gospel. And so he needs to address it. So he's riding towards that end. And so he's talked about the people that they should trust. That's what we're coming out of. They the people that they should imitate, Timothy and himself. He's warned them of the enemies of the gospel. These are the people they should not trust. That is what he's just done. And then in verse chapter 3, verse 20, he reminded them that they await a Savior and a resurrection in him. After that, he then, in chapter 4, verse 1, he then piles up adjectives about how much he loves this church. And then we get this, chapter 4, verse 2. I entreat, Euodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel Together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are in the book of life. I entreat you, Odia, and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel, together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are in the book of life. And so this morning we're going to answer how to settle disagreements in our life together as a church or to state it more positively. We're going to see how we can live inside the unity that we have as God's people, even though we have a lot of different people from different backgrounds and different preferences and things of the like. And our answer is going to be the same answer that we had back in chapter two. Namely, the answer is to have the mind of Christ. That's the simple kind of one sentence answer, but the We're going to talk about four ways in which we go about overcoming our disagreements. Four ways to agree in our disagreements. Bring us to peace. We're going to agree with Christ as Lord, that we're not. We need to agree with the way of Christ. We need to agree that we are family in Christ. We're not rivals. And we need to agree with Christ's mission for his glory, not our mission for our glory. That's what we're going to see this morning. So let's take off here. Agree Christ is the Lord. The opposite side of that, that we're not. This is how we agree Overcome our disagreements. Agree that Christ is the Lord that we are not. See, when we have disputations with people, we become more aware with that person of what we disagree on than what we do agree on. We, all, we often are more aware of what we disagree on than we actually do agree on. And so the first thing that we, in order for us to do to cultivate unity and peace inside the church, we've got to go back to one of those more important realities that we do agree on. So in the first of those is that we who are in Christ understand that we are not the Lord. Namely, that Christ is the Lord. Christ is the king. He is the king of the universe. Look there in verse 2. You can see that language there. Lord. Agree in the Lord. So Paul is reminding them to agree that there's one higher than them. There's authority higher than them. He's the Lord. His thoughts, his ways, his outlooks are higher. They're better. They're purer than ours. So in the church, we need to be reminded of that. That we are not authorities in and of ourselves. That Christ is the one that has all authority in heaven and on earth. Not us. Our thoughts are often clouded by our own prejudices. It's difficult for us to get around the bent of our own stories. Our own upbringings. Our own preferences. Our own circumstances. Friends, we are often poor evaluators of ourselves. And especially when disagreements come, we rarely acknowledge that in the midst of those disagreements. But since Christ is the Lord, we can begin, begin to settle our disagreements in the church by first agreeing that neither one of us is the Lord. Now, you'll note here in this passage, or actually in this whole letter, four short chapters, Paul uses the word Lord 15 times. So he's really highlighting the Lordship of Christ, the kingship of Christ, which is going to level them below that reality. So 15 times, Philippians 1, 2, grace and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. One fourteen, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment. 2.11, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. 2.19, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you. 2.24, I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. 2.29, receive him in the Lord. one, rejoice in the Lord. 3.8, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. 3.20, our citizenship is in heaven and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, chapter four, verse one, stand firm in the Lord. here in four two, agree in the Lord, four four, rejoice in the Lord always, four five, the Lord is at hand four ten, I rejoice in the Lord greatly four twenty two four twenty three The grace of the Lord Jesus be with your spirit. Paul wants these Philippians to agree that Christ is the Lord and that we are not the Lord. He's the supreme authority, not us. This is going to help us. To overcome our disagreements. so Euodia and Syntyche, I'm sure a lot like us. They likely thought in the midst of their disagreement that they had the perfect interpretation of what was going on. They sort of thought that they were their own kind of lord in that situation. And since they were at an impasse, we can assume that each of them believed that they were this lord, this authority in their interpretation of it. Each of them think that they have the authoritative understanding. And Paul here is reminding them to first agree in the Lord. Now we're going to get to what that phrase means in just a moment. But for now, I think it's important for us to note that Paul is utilizing the lordship of Christ in order to level their pride and help them to begin to work towards agreement. Paul Tripp says we do not live life based on the bare facts of our existence. We live our lives according to our interpretation of those facts. And so sometimes, friends, our interpretations are right, and sometimes they're not. I'm reminded of a pastor friend of mine whose wife says of him that he's always confident and sometimes right. (laughs) So when we get into disagreement, we can't stand to be wrong, and so we often lose sight of the fact that we might be wrong. And even if we are right, sometimes we lose sight of the fact that we're responding poorly, even though we're right. And so by Paul calling these two ladies to agree in the Lord, he is not so subtly reminding them they're not the Lord. And by doing this, it levels their pride. It introduces a dose of humility to their disagreement so they can begin to work towards peace. And so, friends, if we are going to enjoy our unity, Restoration Church, we have to agree Christ is the Lord, that we are not the Lord. That's going to help us get down the road towards agreeing. But secondly, we not only need to agree that Christ is the Lord and what we're not, Secondly, we need to agree with the way of Christ the Lord, with the way of Christ the Lord. Namely, we need to agree with grace, not the law. I want you to notice, beloved, look down there in the text. Notice how Paul specifically addresses each individual in this situation. Do you see that? Do you notice that? He didn't just say one to both of them. He entreated both of them individually. He entreats, or the word entreat means like pleads with Euodia, and he entreats or pleads with Syntyche. So you'll notice Paul does not seem to be taking any sides here. Did you catch that? Now this is critical to understand why. This is incredibly wise of Paul. To bring about peace. He's not taking any sides. Paul isn't interested in Euodia getting into the mind of Syntyche. Nor is he interested, it seems, to get Syntyche into the mind of Euodia. So he's not trying to do this. He's pleading with them to get into a kind of third mind. He's pleading with them to get into the mind of Christ. That they would leave their own kind of minds in the midst of their disagreement and get into a kind of third mind, into the mind of Christ. He's pleading them to get into the mind of Christ. See, in disagreements, there are normally two sides. Paul isn't trying to take either of those sides. He's taking a kind of third side. He's calling them to the mind or the attitude of Christ. So when we stop trying to win arguments and instead we work harder at individually laboring to agree in the Lord or to agree in the way of the Lord, the attitude, the mind of the Lord, the sooner we're going to find peace in our disagreements. So what Paul means by that phrase there, agree in the Lord, verse 2, is the same thing he meant back in Philippians chapter 2, verse 2, when he said, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. So that word agree in chapter 4, verse 2, is the same word that's translated mind in chapter 2, verse 2. And also in the word, uh, verse 5, same word. So the word uh, uh, agree in verse, chapter 4, verse 2, same word is being translated back in chapter 2, verse 2, as, ma, as mind. So he's telling you, Odi, in Syntyche, have the same mind to agree in the Lord Jesus. Whereas Paul would write uh, just after chapter 2, verse 2, and verse 5, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. And what is the mind of Christ? Well, the answer briefly is the gospel. So you'll know go back, if you are flip over back to chapter two, you'll see he says, have this mind be of one mind. Then he says, have this mind which is yours in Christ. And then right after verse five comes verse six and verse six down to eight is nothing but the rehearsal of the gospel. Where we see Paul says in verses six to eight, Christ was in the form of God. He yet he didn't count it a to be grasped but instead he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant notice the downward trajectory he was in the form of god didn't count a thing to be grasped instead emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men and then it goes down and he says and being found in human form he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death even death on a cross and what was the result of that what was the result of christ doing this Verses 9 to 11, glory, glory, or we might say it this way, peace, peace. In other words, Christ was fully innocent, and yet he humbled himself and became as though he were wrong, even though he hadn't done anything wrong. Why? So that peace would come to the disagreement that God had with we sinners. That's what happened. So while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And he not only died for us, Christ rose for the redeemed, that they might have new life, that they might have peace with God. So Christ, we see this is that language of not grasping. Christ did not hold on to his own glory, but instead he gave it up. He laid it aside, even though he was innocent. And he did that because he loved us, because he wanted peace. This is the gospel. Romans 2, 4 is such a helpful verse when you think about disagreements. It says it was the kindness of God that led us to repentance. It wasn't the lash or the meanness of God that led us to repentance. It was the kindness of God as exuded in the gospel, in the cross. And this is what Paul is trying to say to Euodia and Syntyche. He's saying, stop being so insistent about your own righteousness. And like Christ, lay it down. Don't grasp it. In love, in kindness, Offer peace, to offer grace to the other. That's what brings peace. We can, we can even imagine Paul saying to these two, "Remember, don't you remember, Euodia? Don't you remember Syntyche? Remember the gospel? Remember Christ. Remember Jesus did not hold your wrongs against you? Remember? So why are you holding your wrongs against each other? Agree in the Lord. Agree with the mind, the way of Christ. Agree with the gospel. Agree with grace. That's what brings peace. Agree with grace. Grace, friends, is always the pathway to peace. Always, every single time. We tend to think that the lash of the law is the way that people will change, but it never works. It never works. The lash of the law to change people never works. When we disagree, we tend to want to beat up our opponent with their wrongs and remind them of our rights, And we think that by doing so, that eventually they're going to see our side and they're going to start changing. In other words, we think that we can change them by trying to be mean enough or remind them of their wrongs enough, whatever the case may be. We think that somehow we can manipulate the situation so as to change people by reminding them of their wrongs. But friend, not only is that a bad anthropology, namely that you think that you can do anything to change people, But it also, friend, does not accord with the gospel. It doesn't accord with the gospel. The greatest news that brought about the greatest change in the history of the world. Christian, you and I were at odds with God. We were in a cosmic disagreement. And what did God do to settle it? Grace. Grace is what he gave us to settle our disagreement. He gave us his son so that we could have peace and harmony with him. It was God's grace that led to the peace of our disagreement with him. That's how our disagreement got settled. It got settled by Christ on the cross. It got settled by absorbing pain and being willing to love in return. Clear the debt. That peace would come. It got settled by God, the righteous, giving us grace and mercy. And that grace and mercy is what led us to peace. A peace, Paul says, in just a moment in Philippians 4, is a peace that transcends all understanding. It's not just a superficial kind of peace. It's a peace that transcends all understanding. We can't, even, right, we can't even begin to understand why God would want to have peace with me. That's a great peace. And it came by grace. Agreeing with the way, the mind of Christ, agreeing with grace is how peace comes in our disagreements reminded this past week of the two-year anniversary of that terrible, deadly shooting in Charleston, South Carolina, the Emanuel AME Church, where Dylan Roof came in and had that deadly shooting. And if you remember the events of uh, that week, you'll recall that uh, after that shooting, something strange happened that the news outlets couldn't really figure out. And all the other cities where shootings like that had had a racist shootings happened like that, there were all these eruptions and violence. And the news outlets were, were saying that they were sort of perplexed because the community was in peace and they were trying to explain it. Well, I think we found out why there was so much peace because a few days after that tragedy, the family members got to speak to Deadlin, uh, Dylan Roof. And they told the man, they did something that explained why there was peace. In the midst of a terrible thing that this man had done, they told him that they forgave him. And they invited them back to their church to study the Bible. Think about the gospel. I mean, these people lost more than you and I maybe ever will. They were in deep pain. And they offered grace. And that's how things get changed. That explains why there was so much peace. Because Dylan Roof attacked the headquarters of grace. Peace was able to come about. And so that's exactly what Paul says here to Euodia and Syntyche. It's what we need to do as the church of Jesus Christ. We need to agree with the way of grace to bring about peace in disagreements. And I understand, friends, I understand this is hard. The cross was hard. I understand this is hard. It's hard to lay aside the offense someone may have leveled against us. I understand it's hard to choose Christ's way, to have his attitude, to have that kind of third mind, to get out of our own. I understand it's hard. And I think it's hard for at least two reasons. First, to offer grace and agree with the Lord is to appear as though we lose. And that is a blow to our pride. No one likes to lose. No one likes to have their pride be leveled. If people did like to have their pride be leveled and be humbled, well, they'd be walking around a whole bunch of humble people. And I'm pretty sure you and I don't walk around the city around a lot of humble people. There's a reason for that. We don't like to have our pride level. I think that's, that's at least one reason why we don't offer grace because we don't like to feel as though we're wrong. But the second reason I think it's so hard to agree with the Lord when we disagree with our brothers or sisters in Christ or for that matter anyone else and offer them grace in forgiveness, clear the debt, absorb the pain, is because we're scared. We're fearful because it means we have to lose control. Maintaining disagreements and being angry and rude to those we disagree with, it keeps us in control. And then we can be Lord. If we are, especially, we are the offended party. Maintaining those disagreements, being angry, being rude to them, not clearing the debt, not performing grace, it keeps us in control of the relationship and we can be Lord. We can manage our hurts, we can manage our fears. And so to offer grace by agreeing in the Lord means that we have to give up control to the true Lord. And that's scary because we're no longer in control. It makes us susceptible to more hurt, more difficulty, more pain. And here's the thing about that, though, friend. The Lord knows that struggle. He knows that struggle. Think about the stress of Christ in Gethsemane. He knew that he was about to go through hell. And for grace and peace to happen, he could not return revile for revile. He knew that he would have to entrust the situation that was out in front of him. He had to entrust it to his heavenly father. It was so burdensome, the thought of it, he sweated blood, the Bible tells us. And yet for the joy set before him, he entrusted. He offered grace That God, he knew God would deal with the tormentors. He didn't have to. He wasn't going to do it. Like a lamb that is led away to a slaughter, he opened not his mouth, the Bible teaches us. Painful though it was. Can you imagine how painful, not just even the physical pain, but just the emotional pain that was coming to him as he was spoken so harshly to. Yet he did it. And it was his grace that led to Peace, which leads to our everlasting joy through faith in the atoning work of Christ. He knew that. The way of the cross, the way of grace is hard, but it is the pathway to peace, beloved. If we are going to enjoy unity as a church, if you're going to enjoy unity in your relationships, you and I, we're going to have to agree in the Lord. We're going to have to agree in the Lord. We're going to have to agree that grace is the way to peace. And that's what it means to, at least in this passage, agree in the Lord. To have the mind of Christ, which is seen in the gospel. We're going to have to agree that our attempts to be Lord, they don't work. And that Christ is Lord and that his ways, his ways are good. He's a good king. We have to agree to that. Disagreement, friends, we, if, we, if we don't actually live in this mind, and if we do begin to kind of or we do sort of begin to try to have our own lordship in disagreements, we can be sure that we're not going to have peace and that disagreement will eventually lead to destruction. You can be sure of that. But if we agree that Christ is Lord and that his way of choosing grace over the lash of the law is the way to peace, then we will enjoy the unity of Christ in his church. Something I'm thankful that we experience And have experienced in the life of this church for so long. And I realize that what Paul is saying here. Seems impossible to some of you in particular. To have been hurt badly. I talked about the fact that it was hard. But this seems maybe even more than hard. It seems impossible. But listen. God doesn't need you to perform the agreement. He doesn't need you to perform the agreement. He is the great peacekeeper. Not us. He's the great peacekeeper. You did not perform the peace that you have with God in the gospel. And you don't need to perform the agreement that leads to your peace in the disagreement. So you do have a role for sure. Of course, you have a role. But he is the one that provides us strength. He's the one that provides us strength. We don't have to trust ourselves to go to our own sort of cross and offer grace in disagreement. We trust him for strength. We trust him for strength. Just as Christ performed peace at the cross, he can do it again in your life. Trust him for strength. Don't trust yourself. Walk in obedience, trusting him and trusting your life to him in that disagreement. And also, friend, utilize the grace of the church to help you. Trust him for strength and trust the helpfulness of the church. Look down there in verse three, chapter four. Do you see there in verse three how Paul calls for a true companion to come alongside these two ladies? See that? Now, some people think this could be, it's interesting, that could be a proper noun. It could be a person. Uh, It means loyal. So it would be like calling someone loyal. His name is loyal. Uh, We're not quite sure, but it does seem to be an individual of some sort. Paul calls for this true companion to come alongside these ladies. Paul knows, Paul knows in the midst of this disagreement, he knows that not only do we need the strength of Christ, we need the strength of his people to live out in grace. He needs the strength of his people to come and help us. And so my encouragement to you, wherever disagreement is offered, we see Paul providing for us an example of how we need other people to come in and help. Because we understand we can't do it on our own. This is why pastors, this is why our pastors exist. For one reason, there's a few reasons why we exist. But this is why we exist, to try to bring about peace, to help others of you that are in disagreement, to come alongside you, to help you as true companions. But it doesn't have to be pastors. It could be other people that you know and love and trust Bring them alongside to help quiet and bring peace to your disagreements. Paul seems to see this. Don't do this on your own. We need the strength of Christ. We need the strength of his people to give grace and offer uh, peace to disagreements. This is the way of Christ. And so we need to agree in the Lord. That is, we need to agree in the Lord. His ways of grace are better. They are the ways that bring us peace in our disagreement. So we need to agree that he's Lord. We need to agree the the ways of the Lord. And thirdly, we need to agree that we are family. It's a third thing we need to see see peace brought about. We need to agree that we're family in Christ. We're not rivals. Now look down there. You'll see it there. Just before Paul, look in verse 1. Just before Paul directly addresses the disagreement between these two sisters, Paul says something back in verse 1 that I think preempts what he's about to say in verse 2. He calls the church there in verse 1, my brothers. Which could be read, my brothers and sisters. In other words, what Paul says right at the front, before he goes into it, is family. We're family. And I love you. We're family. Then look down there in verse 3. Paul reminds these two women, as well as the others, they used to work side by side with him in the spread of the gospel. Alongside Clement, which I've wondered about Clement. i wondered, well, I don't need to say that out loud. Well. But anyway, there's something going on with Clement there. So they, he reminds them that they used to work side by side in the spread of the gospel. So their brothers, their, fam- their brothers and sisters, family, they used to work side by side. And then notice what he says there. The rest of it, he says, my fellow workers. You see that there in verse 3? You're my fellow workers. Now, we've seen this language of fellow workers before, haven't we? Remember, Paul calls Epaphroditus a fellow worker and a soldier. And so, by his using the word fellows, these two ladies are fellows, Paul's reminding them that they're family in the gospel. They're family. But even more than that, Paul says there in verse 3, these people, they both have their names in the book of life. Clement does, Euodia does, and Tyche does, whoever else does in that church. Their names are in the book of life. Now, the book of life, something often talked about in Scripture, it's the personal names of God's elect, God's chosen people. A book, Revelation 13, 8 says, that was written before the foundation of the world. And so again, Paul is saying here, you're together in the gospel. your family. your family. In other words, Paul is helping these women see that they have much more in common than they don't. They have so much more in common than they don't. The most important realities for those whose names are in the book of life are settled. They're settled. The most important realities are settled for us that are in Christ. So because of the work of redemption, the debt of our sin has been paid. And so we have been reconciled to God and counted righteous through faith in the work of Christ. So since we are united to the father, we are united to one another as the body of Christ. And there's no better news than that. We're family. Therefore, whatever differences we may have, they are not nearly as important as what we have in common. And so any disagreement then can be settled. We're family. What holds us together is stronger than anything that may try and tear us apart. Now, perhaps Euodia and Syntyche had gotten so upset with each other that they forgot this. Or maybe it wasn't at least prominent in their minds. Again, they were more aware of their differences than their similarities. Euodia lost sight of the fact that Syntyche was a daughter of God. and Maybe Syntyche lost sight of the fact that Euodia was ransomed by the blood of Christ. And because of this, they lost sight of the fact that they're family. These are your sisters. Sisters in Christ. And Paul is saying, listen, agree with the fact that you're sisters in Christ. What you share is so much more than what you disagree on. Remember that. I think about this in relation to my brother, Nick Teku. I don't have a disagreement with Nick. But I was just thinking about as I was going through this passage. He and I are so different, the two of us. See, he he uh, was raised in a communistic country. I was raised in America. Where we warred against communistic countries. Uh, he has an advanced degree in math. I hate math. I'm terrible at math. I took a path in college to get around math. I hate it. I'm terrible at it. You could, you can sit at, the, at dinner time. You go to dinner. If there's a check, I don't even, I just ask my wife, or if Joey's there, I ask them. I don't even try to do the tip, whatever. I don't whatever 20% is. Just what is that? Tell me what to do. I can't figure it out. He loves math. He's got, like, an advanced degree in math. He's probably never played baseball, which is odd to me. How can nobody not play baseball? And I love baseball. I love baseball. He married a girl from Germany. I married a girl from Georgia, right? Two very different places. He has one little girl. I have two little boys who had a spider on him and was enjoying it a moment ago before I came up here. I mean, that's just very different. At elders' meetings, Nick is always trying to sort of understand how everything sort of works together to come out to get our solution, just like a mathematician. And I am not nearly as calculated as that, which is why I need other brothers around me uh, to help me think through these things. And yet I always enjoy the company of this brother. I love being around Nick. I love being around him. And why is that? How does that happen? How does that happen? Because the most important things about the two of us are the same. They're the same. With all of our difference, the most, the most important things about us are the same. And so this helps us when we disagree. So when we sit in on elders' meetings, we know that we have the same goal. Even as a church, we have the same goal. The way we might you know, make decisions to get there might be different, but that goal being the same and our family being the same, we can get through anything. We can get through anything. And so that helps us work through it. And so the same is true for all of us at Restoration Church, as members of this church. If you're a member of this church, our statement of beliefs and our church covenant communicate that we agree on the most important things. So then whatever we may disagree about, we can get through it. We can work through it. Some of you like really trite things, small things. You may want more hymns. Some of you are like, I want less hymns, right? Some of you say, I, like, I want more people. Others of you I know have said to me, I want less people in our church so I can know more of them. Uh, But since we agree on the most important realities, we understand we're all one in Christ, we're family, so those preferences don't control our relationship together. Just stop and think about this little church for a second. We have 135 members who are from uh, around about 20 different ethnic backgrounds. That's a lot of people for a lot of diversity. And of course... Those 135 people have 135 different upbringings, which have 270 different parents. See what I did there? I did some math. So <laughs> actually, I actually had to add that up. So, like, it took me to carry the two. There. There's 270 different parents. And so there are people here that were born. There are members of our church that were born during the Eisenhower presidential era. And we have members that were also born during the Bush administration, same church. In here together. And so some of you are Republicans. Some of you are Democrats. Some of you are Independents. And yet, we're all fellows. We're all family. We're all one. We're all together for the gospel. So the testimony of that kind of unity that we share in Christ as a church family. Guys, that's one of the most beautiful declarations we can make evangelistically to the community around us here in northwest D.C. In a society where unity amongst diversity is getting harder and harder to find, you can find it here. I praise God for that, and you ought to be able to find that in any any gospel-believing church. And so, I think Paul is wanting to remind the Grace Church Philippi of, especially these two ladies, of these realities: to agree to these two women that were disagreeing, agree that Christ is Lord, agree with the way of Christ the Lord, and agree that in Christ we're family, we're not rivals. And lastly we agree with Christ's mission for his glory. We agree with Christ's mission for his glory. Or in other words, putting it negatively, we don't agree with our mission for our glory. See, when we get stuck in disagreements, those disagreements can take up so much of our mental energy that they become our mission. We can't stop thinking about the person or the persons involved. We uh, we lose sleep over some of those disagreements. We may even read books or listen to Uh, Podcasts and things like to try to figure out how we can go about overcoming those disagreements with that person And slowly without even noticing it for those of us in the church We forget the mission of the church is to spread a passion for his glory We get off the mission By thinking about our own mission All the while we anticipate if we are on the mission of christ to spread a passion for his glory by making disciples we also remember, we just saw this, we're awaiting his return where he will give us, uh, he will transform our lowly bodies to be transformed into his glorified body. And Paul is reminding these sisters of that fact. Back in chapter 3, verse 18, Paul reminded them of who the enemy was. And I am sure, that thinking my, now this letter would have been read, read to the church. I'm sure that as Euodia is probably sitting on one side of the room, Syntyche sitting on the other side of the room, they weren't sitting next to each other, I'm sure. When that parson was read, three, chapter 3, verse 18, this is who the enemies of Christ are. Both those ladies had to have known, yeah, that ain't Syntyche. Yeah, that ain't Euodia. And then when he got to chapter 3, verse 20, he starts talking about the citizens of heaven. I'm sure that Euodia and Syntyche, if they were being honest, they would have had to know, yeah, that's, she's the citizen of heaven. And then he reminds them that they used to work alongside of one another. And I'm sure both of them would have said, yeah, those were good days, hard days, but those were good days. And then he mentions that there again, names are both in the book of life, or at least he says that uh, their names are alludes to the fact that their names are in the book of life. He's reminding them they weren't the enemy. They were family. Soon enough, their bodies would be resurrected bodies on a resurrected earth, reigning uh, reigning over uh, the earth. Christ is reigning over the earth. They're reigning with him. That's what's behind him using that language, I think, of Book of Life. He's reminding them of the hope of heaven. And so Paul is then reminding these two ladies and the church as a whole, these two great and glorious things. Namely, we have a mission to make disciples that delight in his supremacy. And secondly, we have a savior that we are awaiting to bring us home home to heaven. And so with those two great realities, any disagreement can disintegrate when we're focused on the mission of Christ, not on our own mission in the midst of those disagreements. You know, I was thinking about this this week. Uh, Imagine what it would have been like to be a soldier at the end of World War II. Imagine what it was like. Years of unmitigated carnage. Those soldiers, they're at the end. They could see the end they had more motivation didn't they to push back the enemy they could see peace and so their mission was very clear right? push back the enemy peace was on the way in any disagreement that they may have had with one another likely right there towards the end they would have seen that and it would have pushed them on and they wouldn't have worried about that because they wanted to see the end come together and they worked they had more impetus to work together to stay on that mission because peace was so close peace was near And for us in the church, we disciples of the Lord Jesus, our task is very similar. With Christ's final words, he he commanded that we make disciples, make learners, followers of Christ, teaching them to obey all that He's commanded. He told us that those were His final words before He left, and He said to do this—to spread the gospel so far, so wide that it gets to every people, every nation, every tongue on earth. And Jesus says in Matthew 24, and then He returns. And we know what happens when he returns. So with this great mission and this great promise, what dispute is so large that we cannot work through it? With that mission and that promise. Imagine yourself in the glorified state of the new heaven and the new earth. With the radiance of Christ's glory shining on your face. And you tell me, whatever disagreement you may have, tell me that that disagreement is more weighty than that reality. You can't. And so let the mission of Christ to spread a passion for his glory, the promise of our eternal reward in heaven, let that be heavier in our disagreements, and let them orient us. Our common mission and our common destination is stronger than any wall that may attempt to separate us. And so in your disagreements, agree with Christ's mission for his glory. Remember the unity that we have, that we have in Christ. Agree that he is a Lord. Agree that his way, his mind, his attitude of grace is right. Agree that we who are in Christ are family, that we're one, and that no weapon formed against us will stand. That we as a united body are not rivals. We are one in Christ. Christ has disposed everything that we need to flourish, to have peace, and to push back the enemy, to make disciples. As a united body, the gates of hell will not prevail against us. And so, beloved... Hold fast to Christ. Hold fast to Christ. Have the mind of Christ shine as lights to the world. And soon enough, we will be home in heaven where no matter where we may differ, now we will all agree perfectly and live in harmony with one another forever and ever. Amen. So live in light of that day today. And by the grace of God, pursue uh, one another and enjoy the unity that we have in Christ. Have the mind of Christ. We have so much to agree on. So agree in the Lord, beloved. Let's pray and ask him for help. God, we wonder at the fact that in the midst of our disagreement with you, a disagreement that was the greatest of all disagreements, You offered us grace in Christ. And so many of us have tasted what grace in disagreements brings. So many of us know the peace that passes understanding. And so God, make us fervent to enjoy our unity, to overcome disagreement, and get on mission for the sake of Christ and His glory letting those other things dissipate, working through them for sure, but working through them in grace, learning to agree on all the wonderful things that we have to agree on. For those that do not believe, may they come to agree in the Lord. Help them to see their need. God, I pray, may they see their need to come to agreement with you by trusting the work of your son that they might have peace and live in harmony forever and ever so fathers we sing in just a moment I'm certain that there are few people at least here in this room that have heard this sermon and they're thinking about the people that they have disagreements with I pray exactly what I said earlier God for them that they would trust the strength of Christ not trust themselves they trust the strength of Christ and the help of your people and they would pursue peace by offering grace help them God and as we sing, receive our song, enjoying the grace that we have in Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen.